Hello, and welcome to Baha'i Blogcast, with me, your host, Rain Wilson. This is where I interview members of the Baha'i faith and other friends from all over the world about their hearts and minds and souls, their spiritual journeys, what they're interested in, and what makes them tick. Enjoy. Hello, Baha'i Blogcast. It's me, Rain, and I have some neighbors over today. I've got some good Christian neighbors who stopped on by to be on the Baha'i Blogcast. Dr. John Barton, PhD. Sarah Barton, you're not a PhD. Mm-hmm, but I'm a doctor. You're a doctor. I'm a doctor of ministry. Doctor of ministry. Mm-hmm. I didn't know you could get a doctorate in you ministry. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So I'm here with a couple of Christian doctors <laughs> um, uh, who I met from a, a fellow Baha'i friend, Diane Samandi, who lives over in Malibu area. And you guys both teach and work and minister at Pepperdine University. And um, thanks uh, so much for coming over. I'm really excited to have you guys on the show. And I just think it's so valuable for these kind of discussions to be happening. Um, I'm really excited for our predominantly Baha'i audience to just listen to inspired committed Christians who love Jesus and who are super smart about all the world's religions and kind of moving spirituality to the next phase and religion to the next phase and human development. We're going to get to all that. Well, we're thrilled to be here. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for inviting us. Thank you. And uh, you're welcome. And so let me tell them a little bit about you guys. Okay. No, you know what? Let's do it this way. How about Sarah, you introduce John. And then John, you'll introduce Sarah. How's All that? right, here we go. Okay, this is my husband, John, and I will talk about who he is before I tell you what his job is. Okay. <laughs> John is uh, a kind and compassionate and thoughtful person, even when people are not looking. Wow. He's in private, you know, what you see in public. And I think that's something I admire about him. I've always noticed about him and... I see him sometimes when he's not at his best, for sure, but he, he's who he is. What you see is what you get with him. He is a professor at Pepperdine University, where he teaches world religions. He's in the religion and philosophy department. He is the director of the Center for Faith and Learning uh, for Pepperdine University, and he teaches classes in world religions, which is how we got to know Diane and how we got to know you and... Um, that's one of the has been one of his emphases for quite a while in life is just bringing our family and into the lives of all kinds of people of different religions. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. That's, that's John. Well done. That was that was perfectly. That was perfect. Thank you so much, John. Now your turn. Yeah. See if well, you can match you. that. Yeah. I'm not sure I can, but uh, <laughs> but um, so I've been married to this wonderful woman for 26 years. Uh, Sarah grew up on a farm in Arkansas. Uh, we met at college, and I've been able to follow and see her development as a person, someone called into Christian ministry. Uh, she cares deeply and passionately about um, underserved and underprivileged people around the world, uh, from Africa to Los Angeles. Uh, she is the mother of two wonderful children, same two children that I'm the father of, by the way. Um, <laughs> And I've seen her as a mother uh, with all of that. Uh, She is a preacher in Christian communities, uh, sometimes in Christian communities that don't quite know what to do with female preachers. But she's done that with with a lot of integrity and grace. And now uh, she she has been a professor of religion uh, in our former life in Michigan before we came here. Um, And now she is the university chaplain at Pepperdine University. Uh, where she attends to pastoral needs, um, spiritual development and formation initiatives, um, worship assemblies, uh, outreach to various people of the Pepperdine community. Fantastic. But you neglected her book. Oh, Oh, and she's an author. A Woman Called. That's about her calling to ministry leadership. Mm -hmm. And in it, what's your denomination? Uh, We're from the Churches of Christ. American uh, non-denominational group. Okay. 
Okay. What does that mean, non-denominational? <laughs> That's a good question. So Churches of Christ began uh, in the 1800s in America trying to find some level of unity beyond all the denominational divisions mm-hmm. and trying to get back to some ideal that pulls people together. And so, wow. it, you know, the ideal is we're not going to give in to certain traditions or creeds or denominational structures. We're just going to unify around faith and scripture and jesus oh so that's great it doesn't always work out uh with that kind of the ideals are good and they're right and we we continue to pursue unity is really at the center of the beginning of this group there's something we share Mm -hmm. and that's uh really why i wanted to have you guys on the show like your commitment to um interfaith dialogue um interreligiousness communication and and unity is really inspiring and I know you bring in speakers from different faith traditions into Pepperdine, into your classroom. You encourage the students mm-hmm. in your various world religions classes to go out and actually explore other mm-hmm. faiths, go to Buddhist ceremonies or mm-hmm. Sikh ceremonies or Muslim uh, ceremonies mm-hmm. and, and yep. Baha'i devotional gatherings. We've had some of those with your students coming by. And um, why is this important? Why? We have some differences probably in our beliefs mm-hmm. about Jesus and the Bible and mm-hmm. certain things being literal or metaphorical, but rather than focus on those things, why is it important that we find points of commonality? Yeah, well, I would say, you know, and I think it's important to find points of commonality as well as uh, learning how to express and engage each other's differences, um, mm-hmm. even sometimes irreconcilable differences, but to do so with peace and respect. And and uh, that's what makes the world rich and interesting and uh, flavorful. Uh, and to, to explore those things and figure out how to build bridges across our differences as well. I think for me... Um, you know, my, my interest for the last 20 or so years, I've gotten increasingly interested and involved in interreligious dynamics, engagements, and relationships. And um, some of that is because, um, you know, the academic interest for me, I'm an academic, and this is a really, really interesting and important time to study the world religions. Uh, um, whether or not people know this or not, a, a lot of people in the West don't assume this is true, but all of the major religions are growing dramatically right now in raw numbers as well as in relative percentages. Um, There are new religious movements popping up all the time. There are interesting hybrids. Even people that identify as non-religious are finding new and alternative forms of spirituality to express and to, to identify with. So this is a really interesting time to study religions. But also religions are becoming more publicly and politically assertive, um, which may be good news or bad news. I mean, we can have that debate. Um, but it's a really important time to study it. So academically, I've become very interested in that. But then personally, and this relates to both of us in our life journey together, personally, um, we have been in situations, I mean, we're both confessing Christians, as you said, um, you know, our Christian, our commitments to Christian convictions and to the basic kind of central tenets of the Christian tradition are very important to us. I mean, it, it, we've we've organized our lives around those convictions. We've raised our children around those convictions. And yet we've also been privileged and blessed to travel and to live all over the world in different places and to be around and to work with and to be friended by people of all kinds of different backgrounds, religious and cultural. And so I think for the way I would say it for me is that the importance and my drawing to interreligious stuff is both academic and very personal. How do I maintain the integrity of my own convictions while also embracing people that are very different than me and be a global citizen and a neighbor and and, uh, and all of that. John, uh, I guess it was about maybe 15 years ago now, asked me a question that just, I knew what he was studying academically, but when he asked me this question, it really, this is the moment when I became more involved. He just said, who sits at our table? Who do we invite over? Who do we eat with? You know, and I, when we thought about it, it was all of our Christian friends, the people we already went to church with, the people that really were mostly like us. Similar Um, background. Similar backgrounds. Similar race. uh, and Almost all, same race. um, uh, Socioeconomic class. All of that. And Mm -hmm. beliefs. And, and, you know, mostly from the uh, non-denominational group that we're a part of. So... 
that was just that just struck me and it was true and that didn't line up with what i see in the bible about the way that jesus uh who he ate with and what he was like when he was here he was he was always eating at, at, at tables that you know kind of uh frustrated people oh you're not eating with the right people and so we started just very intentionally inviting people to be with us around our table and it changed it changed our lives it changed me it um <laughs> we got to know some of the the coolest people we had this uh, these neighbors down the street uh who we found out they were teachers and they we found out they had been praying for our kids um, every week they prayed for our kids, but they didn't pray in the same way from the Christian perspective that we do. And so we got to know them. We became friends. We talked about prayer together. We ended up having like a little, you know, small group together where we, we lived life closely as friends. And so that's kind of more for me. It's a little bit less academic and more just the personal relationships change you. And I mean, we all know. Uh, Christian, the Christian emphasis on evangelism. And so you have to start kind of when you, um, when you kind of enter into new relationships, you have to kind of stop, start thinking about that in different ways than you have before. These are not just my friends because they're my projects or my mission projects. Mm. And if they don't convert, then I'm not going to be friends with them anymore. You, you, you're really friends. And, yeah, you can share about your faith and, and you can even um, hope that they'll uh, appreciate some of the things that you appreciate. But you also have to just, you know, love people. Let them be and them. And be friends yeah. and let them be them yeah. and also learn from them. So right. you'll still be friends with me even if oh, I don't convert. Oh, we will. We will. <laughs> your church. Yeah, okay. We will. I promise. Excellent. Yeah. No, it's interesting because... Um, you know, Baha'is are not supposed to proselytize, mm -hmm. but however, being called on to teach the faith, mm -hmm. to let people know who Baha'u'llah was, what his message mm -hmm. was, trying um, is super important. Mm -hmm. Also, um, you know, Baha'u'llah says, let deeds, not words mm -hmm. be your adorning. Mm -hmm. So there's a there's a special emphasis throughout the Baha'i writings of uh, it's. The time of talk is over. Talk mm -hmm. is cheap. Mm -hmm. Talk yeah. is meaningless. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. it's really words and actions and like mm -hmm. inviting people to your table and how you introduce John too is so inspiring because I see that in you guys that this is not your, you're not evangelizing just with words, but you're emulating the spirit of jesus christ mm -hmm. through your through your actions yeah and i you know and that that's challenged us uh to even rethink what we mean by evangelism evangelism or proselytizing and i, I do think that there's something about uh, i mean a lot of people would even consider us or describe us as conservative christians I don't mean in the political sense, but in the we're within the the normative mainstream of of convictions in the Christian traditions. We look pretty we, conservative. Yeah, and and <laughs> we we you know we will say openly, you know I'll just speak personally. I really do believe that there is a Creator God who is good and who is merciful, and who gave self expression most clearly in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. I believe that, and so. Um, because I found a sense of peace and joy in that, what would it say about me if I didn't want to, you know, give some witness to that? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, um, our, our relationships and our interactions have reminded us that it is not our job to convert people. In fact, I think that's a deeply Christian principle. We mm. do not convert people. Mm. Um, if, if a conversion takes place, it takes place as a matter of the heart. It takes place through the working of what Christians would call the Holy Spirit. Mm. It's not my job to try to coerce or to impose or to require. It's just, it's just our job to give witness, and that's the language of the New Testament, to give witness to what we have found to be true and compelling, and then honor people's free will. And mm. uh, and love people regardless of how they respond, um, and we found great joy and kind of liberation, freedom in that. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. uh, learned beautiful. a lot. About but it. it's been a journey. I mean, we will just admit that's been a yeah. journey for us from the time we were young until now. That that was a change in our way of thinking about that. There was a time when you could go to people and you could say, "I'm going to show you these Bible verses, and I'm going to by the end of talking to you about this." 
you know, convert you or baptize you or that that was that is a part of Christianity and mm-hmm. even what worked for a while, uh, you know, especially in, in our last century. But it seems that that is not compelling to people now. And it's even the opposite. It's hurtful. It feels uh, to people that you're, you're being very judgmental you know, yeah. or, you know, and, and so I grieve those moments when people have been hurt. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, judgment comes from, you know, people of all faiths. Baha'is can be extremely judgmental as well. Um, and um, it's interesting because I think that in the modern world, something shifted where people can really sniff an agenda. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if you, if they sense you have an agenda towards conversion, they'll absolutely shut down. Yeah. Um, if they sense that your heart is pure and if you're just sharing what you love and what you believe, that's a very different mm-hmm. conversation. It is. Yeah. And you do sense that. Yeah. And Christians have a PR problem <laughs> in uh, in American culture and in Western culture, where there are some things that Christians have done that have been very hurtful. Even listening to your podcast, I hear stories of the way people were judged, you know, in their lives and how they experienced that. And uh, and I think they're, you know, I think we do need, this is a conversation Christians need to be having. So mm. we're, we're happy to be part of it and feel blessed to be a part of it. Baha'is yeah. have a PR problem too. Really? No one knows who the hell we are. So. <laughs> we do. <laughs> that we exist. Yeah, so right. a different yeah. kind of PR problem. Yeah. But yeah. Well, I was just going to say um, on that, I mean, we, you know, we, we were evangelists in Uganda and I, we could talk more about that if we want to, but um, you look at the research in the, in the United States and especially conservative Protestant evangelical uh, corners of the Christian world, which is where we uh, live. Um, are seen by the public, uh, by lar- in large me- uh, measure, as judgmental, um, uh, homophobic, um, uh, you know, out to get you, or, or um, you know, not approving of rigid. you, rigid, yeah. mm-hmm. and all those things. And and uh, you know, more than just being a PR problem in the sense of we're not advertising ourselves well enough, <laughs> that that's a failure to be like the one we claim to follow. Yeah. And that's, that's where I think the real power, uh, powerful critique is. It's not just what's going to work for us, what's going to help us grow, how are we going to get a better public image, but how do we live into and embody um, the spirit of the one that we, yeah. whose name we, we And in identify. that way, too, I think God has a PR problem <laughs> because I think that, you know, in the secular world, God is equated with being judgmental. He's almost yeah. like Santa Claus mm-hmm. yeah. on a cloud. An angry guy angry, in the sky looking yeah. down and judging. You know, you did that bad and I see everything. I yeah. see who's naughty and nice and you're going to go yeah. to heaven and you're going to go to hell. And yeah. and so who wants a part of that God? Right. Like, I, I certainly don't. Um, I said in a, in a previous podcast to Native American friend, like in reading Native American spirituality for me was so eye-opening because the the conception of the great creator, the word is literally the great mystery. And uh, God runs through nature and through time and through our ancestors and through this universe and countless other universes. And, and when you kind of, when I connect with that creative energy and that creative force, I, I, everything, makes sense mm-hmm. to me yeah mm-hmm. yeah but yeah. i i was thinking we were talking about the interreligiosity uh, i just made up that word mm-hmm. the um you know those bumper stickers that say coexist and they have like the different mm-hmm. um symbols of mm-hmm. the different religions and it spells out coexist i was thinking that I, I passed a prius with one of those the other day and i was like no that's bs i'm yeah. sorry mm-hmm. no it's not about coexisting that's coexisting is not what we're after right. i mean it would be nice to hit coexisting on the way to something greater coexisting where we're not blowing each other up or killing each other or mowing each other down with machine guns certainly that's a good thing but beyond coexisting can um you know people of faith hand in hand with people not of faith work together to making the world a better place and if we all believe in love and as love as the energy that binds us all and love in emulation of the christ in emulation of baha'u'llah as a baha'i um that uh 
we can live in harmonious love with one another right, and, just, yeah. and, and strive for that. That's a lot more than coexisting. Yeah. And I had the same problem with the word toleration. I mean, I mean, tolerance is a good thing, obviously, but there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, a kind of a feel that the word tolerance gives off that I'm going to tolerate you. I don't like you. I, I don't, I really don't wish you were here, yeah. but I'll tolerate you. And, um, you know, I, again, speaking from a Christian perspective, uh, we are called to so much more than coexistence and toleration. Um, we're taught, we're called to love, to embrace, um, to collaborate, uh, to, to do work, to, them, to do to others as you would have them do to you yeah. means I'm not just going to tolerate you. I don't want to just be tolerated. You know, I want, mm -hmm. I want to be embraced. I want to be known. So I'm not going to yeah. do that to someone and just to, tolerate to you. love neighbor and to love enemy. I mean, the hardest command of, of Jesus and it's a command, you know, yeah. you, the love, yeah. love your enemies. I like the way you said, um, Sarah, embrace. Mm -hmm. That's, that's mm -hmm. what the, the symbols should spell mm -hmm. out embrace. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And not just coexist. Yeah. 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 But we would take tolerance and coexistence. Right. On like a you lot said, days. <laughs> that may be a healthy step on the way towards right. something greater. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so political pluralism, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a strong believer in political pluralism, um, being able to live in society together, giving each other the freedom. In fact, I think it's, I think it's core to a lot of the major religious traditions. Um, one of my good friends is a, is a Muslim author named Mustafa Akyol, who's written a book called um, Islam Without Extremes. And one of, the, one of the key principles of that book is, is that a, a core principle of Islam is to allow people to reject Islam. Um, that you, you cannot, if, if you don't give people true freedom to reject the message of God that you're presenting to them, then you're not giving them the, the ability to accept it. Isn't coercion forbidden in the It in is, the yeah. Quran? A, there's a Quranic verse that mm -hmm. specifically forbids coercion. Mm. Yeah. Now, speaking of Islam, you are going, you were going to a Muslim seminary, uh, an equivalent. Were you studying to be like an imam or something like that? Or? <laughs> no, but I, but I am still going. Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a student. So I finished my PhD, what, almost 20 years ago. So it's, this is not a credential building thing. But um, when we moved to, to uh, Southern California, I learned about a, it's a, it's called Bayin. It's at the Claremont School of Theology under the umbrella of the Claremont School of Theology. And it's an Islamic graduate center and it trains imams and Muslim leaders and chaplains and so forth. And, uh, and it's, it's a confessional graduate center. I mean, this is not just a, a merely academic. Um, but they bring in the best scholars in the Muslim world and the English speaking Muslim world to train imams and, and Muslim chaplains and so forth. And so when I learned that, when I learned about Bayin, I, uh, I approached them and said, I know this is an unusual request. I'm a Christian professor at a Christian university. I'm not trying to convert to Islam. I'm not trying to come here to change your program or be a Trojan horse. I just want to learn more. I teach world religions and I want to be able to teach it with more integrity and authenticity. And I have learned a lot from Christians talking about Muslims. And that's, you know, and, you know, there is a place for talk for, for talking about um, other groups. Sometimes that's done well and sometimes it's not done well. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to uh, be given the privilege to hear them talk about themselves and to, to see them wrestle with their own issues and with their lives and with their, um, and to learn from their teachers. Um, so I, I requested that and they have opened their arms and welcomed me in. I'm in a cohort of students, uh, and it's been a wonderful, I've been doing it for about a year and a half now. It's been a wonderful experience. How has learning about the Quran, uh, deepened your understanding of, I don't know, religion, religious faith, God, your own identity as a Christian? What, what have you learned? Yeah. Um, well, let me start with that last one, my, my identity as a Christian. Uh, you know, one of the commands that we have going back to the Ten Commandments and then coming through Jesus is that we are not to bear false witness against our neighbor. Um, said positively, we're to tell the truth about our neighbor. Mm -hmm. um, and going to Bayin has deepened my appreciation 
for Islam and given me some tools to help tell the truth about Islam in my Christian communities. Um, I think a lot of Christian communities have been guilty, not just Christian communities, uh, it happens in all directions, but we've been guilty of uh, stereotyping Islam, uh, reducing it down to a certain thing that then becomes a straw man that we can kind of beat up and critique and say this is what we're not. And we haven't let Islam be as complex as it really is with traditions of interpretation and all these different uh, um, traditions of, 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 uh, of practice. And being at Bayin has given me a deep and firsthand uh, appreciation for um, the complexity of Islam, which is very important for us mm -hmm. to... That, 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 that'd be one example, I think, that I would say. And do um, you hear God speaking through Muhammad? Wow, you're uh, you're going to get right to the. Uh, yeah. Do I hear God speaking through Muhammad? Well, you know, because I self-identify as a Christian, um, I you know I don't I don't commit myself to a belief system that holds Muhammad up as uh, certainly as the seal of the prophets. Um, but I hear God speaking, and I seek to hear God speaking through all kinds of people and all kinds of things, and I think. Christianity oftentimes has had to learn to hear God's voice outside of Christian traditions. Um, sometimes when we miss God's voice uh, to our own shame, and you know, I, I don't know how to answer that. And I may be, uh, I, you, you can tell me if you think I'm evading the question. I don't know how to answer it with with regard to the historical prophet Muhammad. But I would say, um, uh, I certainly have heard and experienced God. Um, through Muslim friendships hmm. and through people mm -hmm. that have committed their lives to uh, believing in the prophecy of Muhammad. I, I think that's fair, and I think that's a, a, a good and honest answer. I think that, you know, as a Baha'i, you know, we would read the words of Christ uh, or read the Bible, especially focusing on the words of Christ or what were purported to be the words of Christ at the time. And we would read the Quran and the words of you know, the holy messenger of God, the mouthpiece of God, Muhammad, and Baha'is would find so many similarities in, mm -hmm. in what, in what they're saying that, you know, we strive to hear God speak through many of these different manifestations, as you know, mouthpieces. And I'm just wondering if sometimes you're reading the Quran and you come across something Muhammad says and goes, wow, that just sounds just like what Jesus would well, say. Yeah. And that sounds really mm -hmm. right on the right on the money. Well, certainly I, I find those places all through the Quran. Uh, I find differences too. And even some things that I cannot endorse and cannot get my, I cannot accept. Um, but I find many, many similarities and many points of overlap that makes genuine friendship and collaboration and, and respect possible. Um, and, and, you know, using the Baha'i example, uh, you know, I know that's true in your tradition and your, your, your journey as well. In fact, you may find this interesting, the word Bayin that the, this graduate school is named after. I mean, one of the writings of the Bab that's so famous is the Persian Bayin. It's the, it's the, the, the eloquent manifestation uh, that the Bab was writing before Baha'u'llah, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. uh, had his revelations. And one of the things that the Bab seems to say, at least in my reading, Reading, uh, of in the Persian Bayin is that uh, he embraces uh, and builds on the Muslim traditions, but there's also a sense in which he claims uh, a abrogation, a yep. fulfillment mm -hmm. of Muslim law. Yep. You know, a building beyond. And, and didn't um, Jesus do that too? Absolutely, with, with to the, the to Jewish, Jewish absolutely, tradition? yeah, mm -hmm. the yeah. And Muhammad did it too. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Islam is understood as a building on the Jewish prophets, uh, including Jesus. And so, there's a lot of continuity between the Quran and what the New Testament teaches. But there's also some very important differences. Muhammad takes uh, the the his testimony and the revelation in some directions that cannot be accepted in mainstream uh, Christianity. Sure. And those are some important things too. Uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Speaking of points of commonality, I just wanted to share with you guys, and maybe you've read this before, but uh, our producer Nason sent it over to me. Um, a beautiful quote uh, about Jesus from Baha'u'llah, and uh, I just wanted to share it with you and with the listeners to show how much commonality there is. Uh, differences too, but. Uh, the depth of the commonality and the, mm -hmm. and the passion and the, 
Uh, it's a beautiful quote. So Baha'u'llah says, Know thou that when the Son of Man yielded up his breath to God, the whole creation wept with a great weeping. By sacrificing himself, however, a fresh capacity was infused into all created things. Its evidences, as witnessed in all the peoples of the earth, are now manifest before thee. The deepest wisdom which the sages have uttered, the profoundest learning which any mind hath unfolded, the arts which the ablest hands have produced, the influence exerted by the most potent of rulers, are but manifestations of the quickening power released by his transcendent, his all-pervasive and resplendent spirit. We testify that when he came into the world, he shed the splendor of his glory upon all created things. Through him the leper recovered from the leprosy of perversity and ignorance. Through him the unchaste and wayward were healed. Through his power, born of Almighty God, the eyes of the blind were opened and the soul of the sinner sanctified. We bear witness that through the power of the Word of God, every leper was cleansed, every sickness was healed, every human infirmity was banished. He it is who purified the world. I love this last sentence. He it is who purified the world. And this very last sentence is so beautiful. Blessed is the man or woman who, with a face beaming with light, hath turned towards him. Mm. Mm -hmm. I haven't read that before, heard that before, but it reminds me of uh, my favorite passage in the New Testament is in Philippians 2. And um, it's uh, it says, and if we could really all just try to do this. It says, in your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind Christ Jesus had. Hmm. And so it starts like that and it goes on from there. But that that just something about the way that that, that described this um, breath, this uh, the, the descriptions of the Son of Man that are listed there, it reminds me if, if we could all just see that and become a bit more like that, self-sacrificial, humble, uh, giving of ourselves to serve others, um, being willing to, you know, give of ourselves even to the point of death for someone else. Mm. That's a hard, that's a hard, uh, that gives us a lot to do before we get into too many arguments. You know, that's a lot, <laughs> that's a lot we can do. You know, yeah, we can spend a lifetime. Holding, yeah. holding the example of mm -hmm. Jesus, he wasn't just kind and loving and sacrificial mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. Christians mm -hmm. and to people who converted. Mm -hmm. Right. But tell me this. So here's here's an issue I have with Christianity. OK, here's okay. a here's a billion. <laughs> here's a billion Christians on the planet. Here's a little mm -hmm. issue that I have. And I, I, I'm always trying to wrap my head around it. And it seems like a lot of Christians have an issue around this as well. And that has to do with you guys have spoken many times about emulating the Christ and following in his footsteps. And yet it seems like there is. Um, uh, and I've spoken to some evangelical friends about this. It seems like there is a, a school of thought in Christianity, maybe propagated by Paul, that it doesn't matter emulating the, or following in the footsteps of Christ, feeding the poor, um, acting with tremendous love and, and courtesy and respect uh, to everyone, that ultimately that's not your job. Your job as a Christian is to get baptized and and confess and um and you know claim proclaim your your faith in the christ it doesn't really matter what you do in your life if at a certain point in your life you said i'm i'm a i'm a christian and you will be saved and so there seems to be oftentimes this disconnect between um Christian actions and this Christian idea of being saved and going to heaven simply through an act of faith in the heart. Yeah. Well, so I, let me let, figure that one let out. Me see, <laughs> let me see if I can say this as bluntly as I know how. I think that is a hopelessly reductionistic understanding of Christian theology. I, 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 I do. I know where your question is coming from, and and I, I see and I've experienced both in my communities and in myself that kind of, of reductionistic understanding. Um, but I think that's hopelessly, uh, a hopeless misunderstanding. I, I don't need to use the word hopeless. Let me back off of that word. Um, I think that's a very unfortunate misunderstanding of what Jesus was about, everything that Jesus stood for. Um, that what Jesus stood for, and I would argue, um, what the Apostle Paul 
was uh, was also propagating after Jesus is an understanding of the world and life and faith where Jesus represents a cosmic hope, where he calls people to care about um, matters of the heart and matters of the body, um, how you treat other people and how you act yourself, how you posture yourself toward God and how you posture yourself toward your enemies. Um, what you do with your actions and with your hands and what you do with your heart. And I think you can't separate all those things out. Uh, mm. uh, I think that's a misunderstanding. Yeah. And I think that it kind of, a lot of that arises in recent um, Christian interpretations where, you know, we've taken a very individualistic interpretation to scripture that doesn't um, exist necessarily when you go back and you really look at what Paul was saying or how it was interpreted in early Christianity. So when one's faith in Jesus or conversion becomes only about me and me going to heaven when I die and making sure that I say the right words and do the right things so that I can be secure. And then it doesn't matter necessarily how I live. I just know that, you know, the blood of Jesus has covered my sins and I'll go to heaven when I die. That is a, a again, an unfortunate understanding because I think that we have to understand that that what Jesus did, what God is doing through Jesus, what has been unleashed through the power of the Holy Spirit is about communities and about um, more than just one person and the interpretations that that have really that are at the root of what you were talking about, I think, are very individualistic. And you just can't go to the Bible. You can't go to the New Testament and just find this completely individualistic reading. It's always about communities and people in community. And engagement with the world and service of others. And mm-hmm. yeah, it really turns the, that, that kind of modern understanding turns the Christian faith into kind of a form of fire insurance. Mm-hmm. I just get what I get so mm-hmm. I don't go to hell. Mm-hmm. Um, where, I don't think there's people necessarily preaching that from the pulpit, but I think sometimes uh, in my understanding that there's a kind of a it's tacitly understood. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. kind of like spoke. They're not saying do whatever you want mm-hmm. out in your life, have yeah. affairs and, right. you know, yeah. and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, do whatever you want morally. Yeah. And, but at the end of the day, just accept mm-hmm. Jesus and you'll be fine. I don't think anyone's like saying that, but I think a lot of, uh, I've seen a lot of, um, pastors speak in a way that, um, God's mercy is, is, it's a, it's a difficult balance because even it in the is, Baha'i yeah. faith, God's mercy is, is surpasseth his <laughs> justice. And, you know, Baha'is do believe at the end of the day, God is all merciful and that we are all sinners and that it is an important act of absolution to, to surrender our sins and right. turn them over. Yeah. And, you know, and so that kind of brings up the other side, too, is there have been groups, Christian groups or others that have emphasized social justice, but make uh, convictions and commitments and and uh, discussions about faith um, irrelevant. Or faith in the heart or right. what happens inside. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah. And commitments to God and submissions to God. And so trying to find the balance of all those things and, and uh, um, is a key, I think. Now, Sarah, you're a chaplain. Yes. And... Um, PhD in ministering, doctor, doctor of ministering. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So you must talk to a lot of the students at Pepperdine Mm -hmm. and hear about the challenges that people are going through right now in the modern day. And is it the same as it was 20 years ago? What What are the modern challenges for you as a minister speaking to 20 year olds Mm -hmm. and trying to address what they're going through crises of faith or issues in morality or finding their path in life mm-hmm. or maintaining hope. What, what are you focusing on? What do you hear? What's the word on mm-hmm. the street? Mm-hmm. What's the word at yeah. the water cooler from, yeah. the, from the minister? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, sometimes one of the things I think is that um, young people don't want us to hear to say, Oh, it was so different when I was young. You know, I, I do try to avoid that sometimes when I'm, when I'm talking to them, because sometimes that almost says, I can't even understand your world. And what I do find is that, you know, people are people are people. And the people who come to me, the students who come to me, and and the wider community faculty staff, people generally want to pray. They want to do good. They want to um, live their lives the way they have decided in their minds they want to live their lives, that 
they want to have convictions and even discipline in their lives, um, but that's just hard. And so that's what I spend a lot of my time talking to people about and, um, what do you, you mean know, it's praying. just hard? What it's is just that? hard to, to love people the way you're supposed to. We struggle with that. As mm-hmm. human beings, we may have ideals that I want to get up today and be loving and kind and, 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 or not cynical, or I don't want to get irritated with my roommate who does this or that. We want to be that way, but we struggle with that. And so sometimes I think we need companions along the way to help us remember, okay, this is what we believe. This is what we want to do. Or as someone who's been farther down the road than students, I can share with them, you know, prayer practices that have helped me Mm. through my life. So maybe some practices of prayer they haven't heard of before or tried before. That's one of the things I love about my work and my job is helping people meet God connect with God in ways that, I mean, I just think that there are so many uncountable ways to to connect with the divine. And yet sometimes we just have such a small little box for that. And so um, I like getting in conversations with people where we can talk about, okay, you want to pray. What do, how do you pray? What, how have you Is prayed it harder before? for people now than it was 20 years ago to pray or to, oh. to kind of like go down that spiritual Mm -hmm, path? mm -hmm. I think we're all having trouble with that just because of technology. Our minds are not quiet. We don't know how to quiet Uh, our minds. We don't know how to meditate. We don't mm -hmm. know how to contemplate. I think it is harder uh, for all of us. Do you guys meditate? I spend some time in meditation and I don't feel very good at it. (laughs) (laughs) John? She's better than I am. I I try. Um, I yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we have practices that we try. I, I, I fast sometimes. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I journal, I, I, I spend different seasons trying different kinds of prayer and, and, um, uh, but it, it's, yeah, it's somewhat of an uphill battle. I do best me. when I meditate, if I have something physical to help me, uh, notice that like, mm-hmm. um, yeah, prayer, yeah, prayer beads. beads. You have, so yeah, I have some right here. I have mine in my Here's purse. A little, um, yeah. Audio. <laughs> I have my prayer uh, my beads. My prayer beads. I think prayer beads help help me meditate. They help uh-huh. me stay focused better, uh-huh. or they even let me lose myself from my thoughts um, more. So I I can you know I can um, experience that with students and maybe introduce them to prayer beads if they've never tried prayer beads. Or um, sometimes I just try to choose instead of some big prayer, I try, try to choose a word that or a, a, a couple of words that I want to breathe. Have you ever done breath prayer? No. So you can breathe in and breathe out and it just calms you. So um, I've been praying one recently that says bring and I'll bring that I'll, I'll pray in and then I'll pray out your kingdom. Bring your kingdom. And then in my mind, I'll think about how I want God's kingdom to be in my marriage and in my family and in, with the people that I know and with the illnesses that I'm aware of. And so I'll just pray, bring your kingdom, bring your kingdom. And I'll just kind of go over and in in my mind, I know that God's kingdom is about love and generosity and kindness and healing and um, suffering sometimes. But that's so that breath prayer, I'll try something like that. Mm -hmm. And -hmm. that helps me, I guess, meditate better. I'm not very good at just sitting and emptying myself. Yeah. In the secular world, you know, meditation is so important in Los Angeles, contemporary Los mm-hmm. Angeles, a lot of people meditate. And, but I always find that in Baha'i faith, it's really important. Prayer and meditation are both mm-hmm. important. Mm-hmm. So you, you can clear the mind, you can open yourself to be able to receive. Mm-hmm. Um, but the act of prayer is so important. Mm-hmm. The act of turning your heart mm-hmm. like a mirror to the light of God and mm-hmm. beseeching or surrendering or whatever that act of mm-hmm. prayer or praise or gratitude or um, asking for healing mm-hmm. that there's something really beautifully human uh, about that mm-hmm. act mm-hmm. and really powerful in that people lose it. I think when they just focus on the meditation aspect, mm-hmm. but I think you can also lose it if you just focus on the, on the prayer aspect, cause mm-hmm. then you're not, how can you be open to, receiving whatever mm-hmm. might be coming back your way. Yeah, I think you I know? have to move. I have to get out and walk and go out and hike in the nature or, you know, even sit outside. That always helps me. Sarah's a also bit. a poet, by the way. She she uh, she expresses some of her uh, prayer and meditation and things through the, the writing of poetry. Oh, that's and, beautiful. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, so sometimes great. my prayers come in the form of Do you have poetry. a place? Do you have them online somewhere or someplace people can no, find them? No, I don't. But I actually did write you a po- your podcast a poem. You wrote my podcast a poem? Yeah, I was going to write it to you, but I decided it would be the podcast instead. That would have gone right to my vanity. I know. Ego, I knew which that. doesn't need any and more stroke. But I also so. knew that your podcast is not only you because of the other people that we emailed with. Right. Nason. Yeah. Nason. And, and so, Laura and other and technical so people. And so I wrote your podcast a poem. Oh, and I think maybe no one has ever written a poem to a podcast to a podcast before do you think uh, this is a first right here folks <laughs> yeah. so you want to hear we it? have a christian minister who has written a poem to a predominantly baha'i podcast and uh, it's kind of corny i love it I'm and gonna, I'm but in. since i read the bassoon king i know that corny is fine with you you and i have to say you you read my book you listened to my book probably yeah. 11 Baha'is have read my book. <laughs> so I thank you for It's great, except for the part about when you had worms when you were a kid. Worms coming out of my butt? Yeah. That's my favorite section. I don't like that section. Well, you I could, I could have, have done any, without that section. You didn't have encounters with worms when you were in Uganda? We no, did, we but did. we don't talk yeah. about it like that. We don't. <laughs> I want to hear that poem. <laughs> yeah, she yeah. did write a poem. That's a different that. poem. Okay, okay I would but, lo- but I'd anyway. I'd love to hear it. I'm keeping my heart open, right. and I thank and you for bringing this. I did picture you looking out the window when you were doing the podcast, which is cool since we're looking out the window now. Oh, beautiful. Okay. Here's how it goes. Facing window, entering world, armed not with weapons, but with questions, it tosses peace grenades to explode hearts for good. Listening outside, tuning in to stories that fill souls with hope, it releases them to float with clouds of sound. Honoring past days without fearing last days, engaging spiritual journeys nowadays, it wonders as time clicks what makes people tick. Joining creation, generating words that serve, broadcasting, podcasting, narrative, digital art. It does its part to light someone's dark, and so may we. Oh, I feel that's great. so insecure. That's great. <laughs> it's kind of corny, but that's you, what I do. I yes, of course. Thank you so much. That's, I know that's your. That's, that's beautiful. The, well, I really do love what you're doing, and that's why this. Like that's that is what I mean too, though. That like for me, that is prayer. That is mm. joining with these conversations that you've been having on the podcast. I listen to quite a few of them, and just trying to do something good and to put something good out in the world that's inspiring and hopeful and tells stories. And I, the way we would say it is testifies oh. to God. Mm. I, I think oh. it's beautiful. That's really beautiful. Yeah. And thank you so much. That really means <laughs> a lot. And um, yeah, you know, um, Baha'is are called upon to engage in meaningful conversations with people of different faiths and people with like-minded aspirations and um um you know as you know in the, in our faith the uh, independent investigation of truth is mm-hmm. so important mm-hmm. and trying mm-hmm. to find the truth and what is the truth for us um which you guys have certainly engaged in and engage in with your students and uh, man i'm just i'm so grateful for that yeah. it's just so cool so cool she's awesome she <laughs> is yeah yeah she gave me a podcast for my birthday recently. Po- I mean, a, a, a poem for my birthday recently. <laughs> I wrote him a poem for his 50th birthday. Oh, that's yeah. great. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm really not that great of a poet. I just, like, that's what I do, though. I write. I like, before. I hear the spoken word thing. Yeah, in it, yeah. The yeah. wordplay and the mm-hmm. rhyme yeah. stuff. And so, do you read it out loud sometimes? Some um, stuff? I did one at our son's wedding. And because I was, you know, performing the wedding and at the, as the officiant at the wedding. And I, mm. I spoke, I spoke one aloud then. But, I don't know. It makes me like kind of sweaty just to share it. Um, because <laughs> so, I, so I don't, I don't share it, uh, my poetry out that was loud. So very brave often. of you. Thank but you. Going going back to prayer because yeah. I love I love the different things you're saying. Like mm-hmm. there's different ways to pray. Mm-hmm. Poetry is praying. It can be being yeah. in nature. Mm-hmm. Walking can be um, praying. Abdul Baha, the son of Baha'u'llah, used to walk and chant and chant and walk. Uh, often often seemed that he was mostly walking while praying or engaged in, in some prayer. And one of the things I've said to Baha'is many times is I have some close evangelical friends and um, I really 
admire and I think the Baha'is could learn from Christian prayer because Baha'u'llah revealed a lot of prayers, wrote a lot of prayers, so did his son Abdu'l-Baha. And so we have these prayer books and they're beautiful mm -hmm. and sometimes they're chanted and, and they're gorgeous, but we get in this tendency of like sitting in a circle with our hands in our laps, op each opening mm -hmm. a prayer book or taking out our cell phone mm -hmm. with a, like mm -hmm. a prayer app on it and just like reading these words yeah. and praying is not reading words. Yeah. And I love, I've, I've been in evangelical meetings and circles when people just have such a direct personal relationship with Jesus and are speaking so purely from their heart to Jesus who they love so much. And that prayer is, is just so pure and personal and beseeching. I think Baha'is have a lot to learn from Christians on that front. I'm yeah. glad you've had those experiences. We were in a, I, it reminds me of a situation one time where Sarah and I were in a group with, with a, a group of non-Christians and, and there was a reason for this, but Sarah was praying in that group. And she went around and prayed for each of the people in there, prayed for their families, their children, prayed the way that we know to God in the name of Jesus. And I remember one of the people from more of a kind of an Eastern perspective, one of the comments that was made is, you know, Sarah, when you pray, it's almost like you're, you're talking to someone. And that seems so simple to us from our world, but that I really do think that's a profound part of prayer in the monotheistic faith, certainly in the Christian faith of that's what prayer is, is we are interacting with, we are in relationship with our creator so that we talk and we listen. Um, and we do so in a submissive posture, mm -hmm. in a receiving posture, mm -hmm. but it really is a conversation and a relationship. And that's something that I really value in our, mm -hmm. in our communities and our faith. Do you, do you, talk to God like I do. yourself intimately like like yeah, you described I, I pray directly to God and I pray directly to Baha'u'llah as well mm -hmm. and Baha'is actually pray in a very similar way mm -hmm. where um, in the name of Baha'u'llah mm -hmm. we pray to God mm -hmm. but God is so unknowable and so mm -hmm. beyond our comprehension that praying to what is that I you pray to light or pray to what's up or mm -hmm. you know pray to the stars in the universe or whatever that's just your conception mm -hmm. and so and we're told in the in the bahai writings to you know the you can direct your prayer kind of through baha'u'llah the mm -hmm. prism you know to yeah. take to take the the rainbow of the mm -hmm. prayer out towards god and mm -hmm. um so i i do i and i find my prayer most effective when i when i personalize it mm -hmm. uh, and i mix it up mm -hmm. sometimes one of the things i love most is hearing our children pray and hearing their voices when they pray. And, um, you know, we don't sit around and pray all the time. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's not like we're, but when they do, or when I get to hear them pray, it's really meaningful to me mm. to hear them I, word their prayers. I feel that same way with my son, who's, he's so pure hearted mm -hmm. and he's 12, almost 13. He's, he's going to get a little soil on his mm -hmm. heart the next, mm -hmm. <laughs> next mm -hmm. decade or so. Yeah. But, you know, I'm just so jaded and, and cynical <laughs> and have been through so much. Like I'm, I'm afraid I don't have a pure heart and having a pure heart in the, by faith is the number one writing in the, in the, mm -hmm. the book, the hidden words possess a pure, kindly and radiant heart that thine may be a sovereignty, ancient, imperishable and everlasting. That having a pure heart mm -hmm. is so important and especially when praying, but when you hear a 12 year old pray yeah. sincerely, like his voice is just like, it's like water. It's like water going down a waterfall. It's so pure mm -hmm. and, yeah. and, and, and musical. Yeah. Now I, uh, I would love to hear more about your time in Uganda, uh, the work that you did in Uganda. You're, you're involved in some socioeconomic projects there. Can you give us a little background on, on those years and um, what you learned? Yeah, okay. Well, what's the short version of that? So we lived in <laughs> Uganda, East Africa for eight years um, from 1994 to 2002. And during that time, uh, you know, we, we were Christian missionaries and yet we, um, quickly learned, I mean, to some of the conversations we had earlier, uh, in this podcast, um, we were in our twenties, but we quickly learned that talking about the Bible or about spiritual, re spiritual realities with people that aren't sure they're going to be able to put food on their kid's plate that night is a truncated understanding of of what our faith is about and so during our years there we became more and more involved um, not just in church work and communities of faith and as well as in a religious work 
but also in sustainable development of different kinds. And so uh, the short version of that is it eventually led to the start, uh, the founding of a nonprofit organization called Kibo, K-I-B-O. And anyone out there that wants to look us up, the Kibo Group, uh, www.kibogroup.org. Okay. Um, and we are, it's been, it's, you know, it started, we are incorporated in 2002. So we're about 15 years into the Kibo Group. And we do uh, kind of an asset-based approach to sustainable development. We partner with um, uh, communities in East Africa to try to address issues of poverty and injustice in their lives. And by asset-based, I mean um, we don't come in as the outside experts that say, oh, we're here on our white horses. We have the education and the money and the American know-how, and we're going to fix your problems. We rather come in and we start by asking questions and building relationships. It's a very relationship-based approach to development, believing that the best solutions to the problems that African communities face um, uh, they have the assets, the, the, the local knowledges, the ingenuities, the resources they need to address those things themselves better than we ever could. So why your missionaries showing up in Uganda, why did you do this? Why not just be missionaries? Why not just try and convert Ugandans? Why well, were you we doing socioeconomic? Yeah, well, we, we, we did a lot of, mm-hmm. of uh, church work and evangelism work and still believe in that. But we really got to know people. Yeah. We learned the local language. We Now it's been a while. It's rusty, but we speak a, the local language, Lusoga, that was not written, that we just learned from, you know, having conversations with people. So when you really get to know people and you really have conversations with them and you really share life together, and here we were, young people. There were older people than us who were really teaching us while we were, you know, engaging with them. And so once you really listen, if you listen, you have to have a more holistic approach. You you, you could go in and you could do, hey, we're here and we're only going to do church work and we're only going to do preaching work. But if that has to just be one way. If you really start engaging in community and listening to people, then you hear about the pro. Or if you spend the night at their hut and have to walk as far as women have to walk together would and bring water, you start to realize how hard it is. Um, so I think some of it was just relationally we started listening to and learning from people what they were facing. And, you know, the other side of that, too, though, is we've also seen a lot when in our years in Uganda, we saw a lot of American and European development workers that came over that only focused on the let's see if we can get them clean water or let's see if we can do this and that and didn't address or even think about the spiritual needs and the spiritual realities and spiritual dimensions. And they hit deaf ears with Ugandans because you can't separate those things. Mm. Talking about the the health of their children, their access to clean water without talking about the transcendent and the spiritual realm does not make sense to Ugandans. And that's something that we learned from Ugandans, too. We, we tended to separate those things out and they kind of pulled us into mm. a more holistic understanding mm. of the world and of life. You know, mm. that reminds me of how... Uh, how one time there were new pit latrines being dug in a village. Mm-hmm. I can't remember all the circumstances, but uh, asked these latrine. You know, the latrine needs to be dug. You need to you need to uh, address the need for uh, for latrines. But after it was finished, everybody gathering around the pit latrine and saying a prayer, and mm. and praying for health in the community and praying for it's thanking so much more God. Integrated. It is, and so. Doing things like that, like when you're suddenly realize, okay, we would actually we just got a new toilet at our house, put it in our house. Last <laughs> did week. You we guys did, pray? we did not, we, we did not See, that's get the around the prayer, the toilet and pray. But <laughs> maybe we should. If you want to come over, yeah, I we'll think do you that. You should write a poem yeah. <laughs> to our new toilet. But I, I can remember standing. Yeah, you think you, you know? I like to ask students sometimes. How many of you have stood around, held hands around a toilet and prayed? But we stood around those pit latrines and we prayed for, for what would go in the pit latrine and what would come out of the. Pit latrine and you know mm-hmm. it sounds corny but it made sense in the integrated world that ugandans live in and it taught us a lot and challenged us to think in in more holistic terms and um, yeah yeah that's beautiful i i know uh Mason, our producer he, uh, spent some time in uganda and he talked about how in the ugandan civil war uh, the aid workers came in and said, you know, what do you need? Do you want uh, schools? you want water? you want irrigation? 
what, what do you need right now? And, and the communities would come forward and say, mm-hmm. we need our church rebuilt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they saw their church and their community as a spiritual anchor. It's like before mm-hmm. we can think about, you know, water, can we get mm-hmm. our, our place to pray together? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's indicative of what our experience is for sure. Just the, the, the desire people have for spirituality, for community, for gathering. And that's a challenging yeah, space to be in. Yeah. It was challenging for us because we were Americans. I mean, we, we were missionaries. So we went over with some convictions about spiritual realities. But we were also Americans that tend to separate out things. And so we would come across, for example, a, a mother and a sick baby, and they're talking about curses and and uh you know spiritual realities and that's what's wrong with this baby and we're thinking in terms of we need to get a blood test done and we need to address the the amoeba issue and all this and how do you navigate the middle of all that mm. um is is really difficult um mm. uh, and we learned a lot and we we're, a lot. we're humbled it, it, a lot it doesn't have to be could it be both yeah is what mm. i learned could it be that there are spiritual spiritual realities and physical realities that's best. All interhandling. Yeah. Working yeah. hand in mm-hmm. hand. Yeah. yeah. But also staying humble, knowing that uh, whatever those realities are, I can't figure it all out in the four inches of space between my ears. <laughs> and so you humble and you, you you humble yourself and you submit yourself and you serve and you pray and you and just try to find your faithful space in these in these in these dynamics. And, and now. We, we live in a time there's not a lot of hope. I remember growing up in the 70s and people talked about world peace a lot. Like mm-hmm. they literally yeah. were like, what do you want? World peace. And they would, mm-hmm. they would talk about now it and think about it. America. And, and now, yeah, yeah, no one, I mean, no one thinks in terms of mm-hmm. world peace. Like you're, you're an idiot if you think world peace is possible. You're just, mm-hmm. you're naive. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you guys, uh, you're working with a lot of young people uh, at Pepperdine. You're teaching them. You're ministering to them. You're getting to know them. You're befriending them. Um, what what are you hearing from them and what gives you hope? We live in a really divided country mm-hmm. between the secular and the religious, between the Republican and the Democrat. Um, and what gives you hope that unity or peace is possible? Well, I do think there's a difference between being hopeful and being optimistic. Um, I don't tend to be super optimistic about our world pro- uh, prospects right now. Really? Um, <laughs> is that a surprise to you? So, yeah. um, but hope is a deeply important concept that, that young people and old people, we find the young people at Pepperdine anyway, they long for something to, to put hope in. Um, and what does it mean to have hope even when the world seems to be on a fast track to hell in some ways? Um, and I, I don't know how to untangle all of that, but I do think it from, uh, from our, from our faith perspective, and I know there's some overlaps with, uh, with some Baha'i teachings in this as well, that regardless of what things look like in the world, the Christian faith is based on a conviction that there is a God who is good, a God who is sovereign, and a God who acts and has acted for the healing and redemption of this world. And whether or not we can connect the dots and know exactly how that's going to happen or when it's going to happen or what it's going to look like or how to understand the, the broad flow of redemption or the little backward eddies that we find ourselves in here and there, um, we work for good based on a hope that there is a God who, who's, who's redeeming. And, and I find to, to give that to myself uh, in my pessimistic view of the world sometimes, to cling to that hope and believe there is something outside of us that is good, that's big, um, is inspiring and, and is motivational. It's really what's behind all of our work in Africa and Pepperdine. And that, that tends to be contagious. And young people, like you were asking about young people at Pepperdine, they long for those kind for glimpses of those hopes and they know they know it when they see it and they're they're drawn to it. I love the um the evidence of that kind of hope that you see in um I mean, think about if there wasn't that hope. It's just a dark, depressing, um hopeless situation. If we if we embrace that, you know how how awful, how, uh, you know, who wants that kind of world? And so I love those moments when you see students create something, a dance or a poem or a, um, a 
project in the sciences or whatever it is you get this that gives me hope is that they're they're engaging with new ideas learning um they're creating new things and they they believe it can make a difference and so the fact just the fact that we don't give up as humanity and we keep trying and we keep uh making having new ideas and you see a young generation willing to that's a vulnerable feeling to think okay i might be able to offer something to the world that could be good hmm. it's hard Hmm. But they're, they they do it. They try. They put themselves out there. And that's what I try to celebrate. And I would say, you know, compared to when we were in college in the 80s, and then we've worked with college students ever since then for the last 25, 30 years. Um, it seems to me that, you, Sarah, you, you may add to this or know better how to explain it, but it seems to me that students now have a more hopeful, more transcendent-oriented view of the world and set of motivations and inspirations than was true 10 or 20 years ago. I think they understand vocation a little with a, some nuances that I, how I didn't what understand do you mean vocation. By vocation, like this calling in life that you might have that's to do something good in the world. Isn't just so that you can be a part of upward mobility and making more money. Hmm. This, this vocation is about, I might be put here in the world for a good purpose. What hmm. might it be? And so I see students grappling with that. What's my that, good purpose? Yeah. And if I'm going to be a, a business person or a doctor or a teacher, how can I do that in a way that brings good into the world? That's a conversation I have with almost every student that walks into my office. They don't come and say, what major should I choose so that I'll make the most money? And, mm. and I know that's still a part of our world, but I hear great vocational con depth of vocational conversations. Why am I here? What am I going to do? Um, how can I contribute? And it's often about more than, than job. It's about, you know, it's bigger than that. And I don't know. When I went to college, I was just like, what am I going to be? Mm, mm. What job am I, I going to do? Oh, that's great. Vocation. Well, mm -hmm. I want to just close out and say, um, I want to thank you very much for being on the show. And this is very brave. You guys were these Christian guinea pigs. You didn't know uh, <laughs> how this was going to go. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I yeah. certainly did. I think the audience will really, uh, really dig this this conversation. And uh, uh, I just want to say that, you know, Abdul Baha, the son of Baha'u'llah, in a letter to a Christian, he said, to be a Christian is to embody every excellence there is. Mm. And I I feel that with you guys. Mm, thank you. Um, and remind you again of this quote of Baha'u'llah, blessed is the man who, with a face beaming with light, hath turned towards him, meaning mm -hmm. Jesus. Mm -hmm. mm. So That's great. Uh, thank I, you for honoring us with those readings. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Uh, and blessings and peace to your family and to all your listeners and, and to your vocation. <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Baha'i Blogcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode and the conversation. Check out more fun Baha'i stuff on Baha'iBlog.net. Thank you so much, and good night.